Ah, the weekend and a busy old day on the radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. So we're still three weeks away from the budget. What I will be able to do and can say now is that we will be able to help and how we will help and what we will do will be confirmed in the coming weeks as we get ready for Budget 2023. Uh, so they're saying, due to extreme volume of interest, please provide us with the following documents. And it says, CVs of adult tenants, pay yeah. slips of all tenants, bank account statements for the last four to six months. Four to six months, yeah. Wow. That's the bit. And yeah. work references. I found my other half on Tinder and I miss Tinder. I miss sitting down every night, you're watching TV and you're swiping to the next person. And I think that's right. It has become a game. And we'll start with the Today programme and those Leaving Cert result flashbacks. Evelyn O'Rourke was in Donoghue's community school in Donoghue in Dublin with the staff and some very nervous students. Evelyn, changes again to the Leaving Cert results structure this year. Yes, good morning and welcome to the Donnie's Community School here in Donnemead. And the excitement is building here as students are expected to make their way in, Claire, having received their results, as you were saying, they're online. We know, Claire, so far that the grades have been supported this year, is the phrase, keeping them in line with last year's cohort. Now, this followed the Minister's announcement last February of a return to examinations for this year's Leaving Cert class. But the State Examinations Commission put in place measures to ensure that the overall set of results in uh, in the aggregate for this year was no lower than last year. There was so much commentary on that leaving cert last year. So the way this worked is that following the marking of the examinations, a post-marking adjustment was used. So additional marks were added to all scores and examination process on a gradually reducing basis. So while we have the theory of the composition of these results, what's it like really at the co-face, I suppose, for the schools and the principals dealing with this latest chapter in the COVID-related Leaving Cert era? I'm getting ready to talk to those students who are expecting it in the next few minutes. Uh, they're just receiving their results. We'll try and grab a few of them to talk to you later. But in general, there shouldn't be too many shocks we expect as the grades have been marked and amended to recognise this rise in the students' achievements. But for now, we'll hear directly from Peter Kilhane. He's the principal of Donahue's Community School here, a debt co-educational school in the heart of Donahue and Airfield in Dublin 13. He is managing and expecting 90 students to come through the door today, getting Leaving Cert results this morning, including some LCA students. So every Leaving Cert student around the country is in the same boat today. But of course, we all get a little, you know, focused on our own cohort of students. And I was very nervous opening the, um, the envelope there this morning and going through it. But I have to say now I'm sitting off looking forward and coming in now and picking up the results I'm looking for. You're delighted. I am thrilled. Absolutely thrilled. Really? And you're saying, look, we're a DESH school, we are working hard here and these results reflect that work. Absolutely. You know, the the work that goes in here on the ground is phenomenal. The um, students are phenomenal. The teachers are incredible. The SNAs are incredible. The chasing up of some kids, you know, that the rewards are there this morning and the results are there this morning and they will take great pride in some of their students who have done so well as well. Now, I know you had a Debs earlier in the week. Lots of talk about the results because they were nervous because of last year. Absolutely. Last year did so well with such a strong showing. Yeah, I mean, last year's cohort, you know, rightly so. I mean, it's been a kind of a very interrupted, as we all know, couple of years uh, regarding COVID. So they were very, very worried. They were conscious of the fact that last year's group really had outstanding results and they were chasing them down. I don't know if they really believed that their their grades would be supported this year uh, in line with last year's because we have to, I suppose, move back to the norm as soon as possible. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that intervention from, you know, to the results? 
Ah, look, I mean, everybody suffered enough, but why would you punish, you know, like teenagers trying to make progress in their lives? It was horrendous for them. Like the first group that did most of their uh, study and uh, classes online, you know, coming to terms with all of that, it was it was very difficult. So we... These guys had school closure, they didn't get junior cert and during fifth year. Yeah, so like they had no, fit, they had no junior cert, uh, no teaching in fifth year, or they had teaching, my apologies, but no uh, in... Uh, personal classes, face-to-face classes. So they've had a really interrupted three years as well. So, so you it think it's fair? Very fair. Absolutely very fair. You know, I mean, to be fair to everybody, and I want to, you know, compliment everybody because there's an awful lot of criticisms and an awful lot of conversations. But at the end of the day, everybody, our own management body here for community schools, ACCS, worked tirelessly, you know, to try and get a system and get something in place that would assist and help everybody to overcome, you know, the um, interruption of the pandemic. So I think, you know, congratulations to them all. Of course, I've no doubt, I said before, when the history of the pandemic is written. Could things have been done differently? Undoubtedly, they'll have found things that might have been able to have been done differently. But I think when you're sitting in rooms and you're trying to come up with ideas and ways of keeping progress going, I think everybody this morning who was involved in education for the last three years deserves a pat on the back. Especially the students, you know. Oh, top of the tree are the students. So you're expecting happy faces here? Oh, I am really happy faces. So Evelyn spoke to some of those happy faces. First up, we're going to hear from two delighted students, Kira Moran and Nathan Fitzpatrick. I'm very happy. Can't wait to tell my mum. So what was it like to get them online? Where were you? How did you do it? So I actually just did it on my school canteen. And we did wish we had the paper certs, but what can you do? We're all here still celebrating to get out of prison. So you came into school to do it together? Yeah, we did. All came in for 10. And that was important to you? Yeah, just to see all the girls, see it the whole year, get what they want, and everyone's happy, smiles all around. How nervous were you last night? Very nervous. Couldn't really sleep, but Checking yeah. Checking the alarm clock. Yeah, everything like that. Um, I think we're all a bit sweating, nervous today, but all good in the end. Okay, what result would be one or two that you're really proud of in particular, maybe you're a bit more anxious about? Yeah, so um, my H1 in art, I was very happy with. H1 and in art, wow. A H4 in maths, which I was delighted for because I struggled in that sense. Delighted. Delighted. Yeah. Are you? Yeah. Were you nervous last night? Oh, barely slept. Three or four hours sleep, that's it. What, just what's going to happen? What's going to be in it? stressed out, all the hard work and just wondering how I was going to do. So what result are you particularly proud of? What's one that really stands out for you? Uh, H1 in German. H1, H1 in German. German? Yeah, that's the one. And my teacher, I haven't seen her yet, Miss O'Connor, so I'm going to go up and see her after this and tell her. I'm sure she'll be chuffed. <laughs> now, are you planning your next steps? What's for you? Yeah, hoping to go to the ECU and do engineering and judging off last year's points, I got it, so I'm hoping. And you had the real COVID leaving cert. You had no yeah. kind of real junior cert. TY was a disaster. Yeah, oh, TY was a disaster. I missed the second half of the year, all the good stuff. Fifth year. Mm, fifth year was tough. Fifth year was definitely tougher than sixth year. Sixth year we were in the whole year. But um, no, the teachers are a great help. Made it easier for us. Another wait for Nathan and the rest of the students now for the CAO results. And we wish him the best of luck with his engineering. And you've been talking to a few more students, Evelyn. I hear they're lining up to talk to you now. Who do you have next? <laughs> Listen, Claire, I could be on till five o'clock chatting to them. They're all so thrilled here. The excitement is just wonderful. So next up, I've one delighted man, Aaron Byrne, and then we'll hear from Zoe. Now, as you'll hear, Aaron is particularly thrilled with his, I won't give it away, actually, his result in English. And then poor old Zoe was in tears, but with relief when I got to talk to her. So let's start by hearing a little bit of Aaron's joy. I got a H1 in English. 
in English. That is so hard to get. I know, I was shocked. I was shocked. I didn't think it was mine when I opened it. I thought it was someone else's results. I thought they gave me a mistake. And that's the result you're most proud of? Definitely. And there's HTL Music, which I'm also really proud of, because I'm going into music, hopefully. Great. And where would you like to do music? BIMS. Hopefully BIMS. Explain that to non-leaving sort of people. Uh, it's a music college in town. You have to audition to get into it and all, and I pass the audition, so hopefully the points can make up for it and I get in. So Evelyn. you're crying. <laughs> yeah. Why are you crying? Uh, just delighted, obviously, the results that I got were what I was expecting, even better than what I was expecting, so I'm really happy, yeah. I'm actually standing in the corner with happy tears. <laughs> oh, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of like over, but like bringing you to the next chapter, which is so exciting to meet so many new people and just to kind of move on. And what would you like to move on to? Um, I'm hoping to go to, to UD Grange Gorman for social care. Um, there's more, like there's one in the Talic campus as well, so I've reached a point anyway, so I'm delighted. And what is the result you're most proud of from the whole batch? Oh, um, passing high level Irish, I got a H5 as well, it wasn't just a pass. So, so it was a little bit of a gamble to stick with the honours yeah, paper? Okay. I was going to drop on the day, but the miss asked me not to and I'm delighted I didn't because I'd done so well. Mahu, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you're thrilled. Yeah. And what was delighted. the reaction at home? Um, just proud, everyone's delighted. Just, my dad's probably thankful, thankful it's over, but yeah, no, everyone is delighted. Fair play. That's Zoe talking to Evelyn O'Rourke in Dunamead in Dublin. Then Claire Byrne spoke to Education Minister Norma Foley, congratulating the class of 22. Oh yes indeed Claire, um, it is a fantastic achievement this morning for 61,107 candidates who will receive their results either through their portal or indeed many of them may choose to um, visit their schools to receive the results and it is a phenomenal achievement for the class of 2022. I, I do acknowledge that you know the last couple of years have been very challenging for them but they have you know met every challenge and so I do sincerely wish to congratulate them and I also want to express my very sincere thanks you know to the school staff who support them. They have been, you know, tremendously supported and it has also been, you know, a challenging time for staff. And of course, thank you also to the parents and to the SEC, the State Examinations Commission, who have uh, had overall responsibility for the delivery of the exams. Okay. And there are challenges to come down the line too for you and for teachers and for colleges. Uh, John Walsh in the Irish Independent this morning says high grades have become the new norm under Norma Foley, but they must stop. Is this the last year of grade inflation? Well, I think, you know, we need, uh, you know, a certain amount of perspective uh, on where we are at this point. We have gone through... um pretty arduous and uh, challenging number of years in terms of COVID. It was hugely important during those years that our students would have a pathway forward and would receive a leaving certificate. So that did demand innovative uh, thinking, if you like. And uh, as a consequence, we had to uh, introduce measures like the accredited grades, calculated grades. And then when it was possible, there was a mixture of both. And this year, uh, we had two sittings of the leaving certificate. And I think it was very important. And the students themselves asked for this, that as a consequence of the accredited grades pro, um, process and um, there was great inflation and the class of 2022 had very specifically asked that you know the grade profile of 2022 would match the grade profile of 2021 and I think in fairness to the students it was important to give that undertaking and that has been delivered upon today. So what's going to happen next year because the assurance was given to this class as you say that there would the grades will be no lower than those of the previous year. Will next year be different? Is that what you're saying today? 
Well, I, I think what we're saying is that today is the day that it is, and this is the day for the class of 2022. I have been very clear, um, you know, that there will be no cliff edge in terms of the students, and that would be the same for the students of uh, the class of 2023. But it will be a matter for the State Examinations Commission um, following the delivery of these results. The State Examinations Commission will review the situation, we'll see where we're at, and, um, you know, um, uh, decisions will be made um, in terms of, of what will be achieved in 2023. But I do want to be very clear. What I can say at this point uh, is that there will be no cliff edge in that regard. Okay, cause I it's, also it's, want to. It's understandable that the class of 2023 will feel very aggrieved if they're not given some sort of 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 an edge or a push with with their exam results because they have no experience of state exams. Their junior cert was cancelled in 2020. And again, just on that point, I am pleased to say that, you know, after um, extensive consultation with the partners in education by the, um, you know, the advisory group, which does include the student voice also, um, I can confirm to you that a series of accommodations will be made to the papers for the class of 2023. And those accommodations for um, the class of 2023 uh, will be adjustments very similar to those that were announced in August of 2021. So um, already I'm um, able to say to you that there is an acknowledgement um, of the, I suppose, the experiences of the class of 2023 and those accommodations um, will be made for them and they will be um, provided for the schools in the coming week, the okay. detail of that. So concessions will be made. So there no, no, there's no need really for that class, those students to lobby you. You're, you're already saying that they will be given some concessions. Yes, I can confirm. And, and again, I want to acknowledge that this is in consultation, extensive consultation with the uh, examinations advisory group. And that's representative of, you know, um, all of the partners in education, parents, students, um, managerial bodies, teaching unions. Um, and there has been agreement that that accommodation will be made uh, to the papers for the class of 23. Education Minister Norma Foley from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Katie Hannan was in the hot seat when Rachel called the live line. Rachel, I have to say, I thought I couldn't be shocked by stories from <laughs> the cold face of this rental crisis that uh, everyone is living through out there. But I was really taken aback by, by your story. Uh, tell it, so, so just to explain to people, you're moving house. Yeah, so on Wednesday, so we're renting at the moment, and on Wednesday, our landlord gave us the heads up that they'll be selling the house over the next six to nine months. Um, so, yeah, we hopped on the property websites and sent out some inquiries right. on and Wednesday I, evening. And we know that uh, if you do put up an ad, that you're in, you, you are likely to get a lot of inquiries now. There's so many Absolutely. people out there. Uh, so you were prepared for that. You were saying you were yeah. offering excellent references uh, from previous landlords and... Uh, you saw a house that you thought might work for your family. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So we sent off the inquiry um, and it was actually the only response that we got yesterday um, in comparison to all of the others that we sent as well. So we got one back yesterday morning um, requesting some information from us before we were added to the viewing list. Right. OK, so <laughs> I have it here in front of me. You talk us through it, Rachel. What is, uh, your, it says, dear applicant. So describe what this uh, prospective landlord wants. And this is just to put your name on a list the, to get in the door yeah. to view it. Exactly, yeah. So just to, to get added to the list, uh, which is happening this weekend. Um, so, yeah, 
In general, I think three months pay slip, work reference, landlord reference, and sometimes a bank statement. That's kind of the norm. Um, is, that, that's so what they were, is that the norm yeah. now that you have to give bank statements and work references? It is. So work reference, it, yeah, that, that would be the norm. All right. I have seen over the last couple of years anyway that that would definitely be standard. Bank statements, I've only ever been asked for it once. Yeah, I was really thrown by that. Mm. I'm really surprised that um, mm. you, you're expected to produce bank statements for this. I mean, that's the mm. type of information you require for getting a mortgage, <laughs> not oh, for getting absolutely. a viewing of uh, an apartment with God knows how many other people. But anyway, go on. So that's what you you wouldn't have blinked if, if that was all that was asked. Yeah, exactly. But in addition to these pieces, um, they asked for the CVs of all of the adult tenants. And it's only me and my husband anyway. Um, which I was very surprised with because, well, I have a strong background and work experience. I have no problem sharing, but I just personally don't see the relevance of sharing CVs. You know, it, it, yeah. I'm just looking at the list here. So they're asking for, uh, so they're saying, due to extreme volume of interest, please provide us with the following documents. And it says CVs of adult tenants, pay slips of all tenants, yeah. I, I doubt if your children will be able to provide <laughs> provide those, uh, Rachel. And uh, bank account statements for the last four to six months. Four to six months, yeah. Wow. That's the And yeah. work references. And then it also says we require two months deposit plus the first rent payment up front. Yeah, up front, yeah. Which the normal would be one month's rent deposit and one month in advance. Yeah. Um, Not and just I think the, even from my... Go on. Yeah. From my own research, um, I don't think they actually can ask for anything outside of um, the one month rent deposit and the one month rent in advance. Yeah, I think that is actually the legal situation because we, we, we yeah. Yeah, we were looking up the RTB site and um, the most you're allowed to ask up front uh, along with the first month's rent is one month's yeah. deposit. So this yeah. two months deposit. Uh, yeah. Would God, I'm looking. I'm looking at. I mean, uh, the, I'm looking at thing, and we're not going to be giving away the the detail of this place yet. But yeah. uh, uh, you know, we're looking at uh, thousands of of, of uh, euro. You'd have to find. Yeah, yeah, up front, and you know, like I don't know any family who's going to have that in the boom times. Never mind with what's currently going on right now. To kind of hand that over um, up front, it, it was quite shocking to me to be honest, yeah. yeah. And Rachel decided not to progress with the application to rent the property. So I responded, um, just letting them know that we're not going to progress and then outlined the reasons why, in a kind way, I think, anyway, in my opinion, um, just letting them know. And I suggested as well, so they hadn't actually included an ask for a landlord or agent reference from previous tenancy, which I found surprising. Um because for me, that would be much fairer, like proving that you can pay your rent, that you look after a place and all of that side of things. So I said that might be a good request of information instead of the additional month. Um, and the CVs. But, and the CVs as well. Yeah, it just didn't make sense to me at all. Why? Um, it, it, to me, it would just be opening up for discrimination. That's the only reason why they would need your CVs. You know, looking at your background and stuff. Just yeah, and I'm, I'm again. You 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 shared the the correspondence that you sent back to them with us, mm. and I'm just reading, and it's very as you say. It was thank you for your response. While the house is beautiful, we will not progress for a few reasons. You set out the reasons, and then and mm. then you say, please feel free to disregard this message. I felt compelled to share why we have decided not to progress. Best regards. Yeah, yeah. And do you want to tell, <laughs> tell us the response you got to that? <laughs> 
Do you want me to read it out? Or? Yeah, go on, read it out. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, so this is the response. So thanks for your opinion. We fully understand. On the other hand, it is the landlord who has to pay the bill for the substantial structural and equipment damage in tens of thousands should the pig, which is striked out, tenant simply disappear without paying and with no chance to trace him. A situation that occurs most likely only in Ireland. Feel free to make your decision. And that was it. So, yeah. So the word pig does appear there, but it is, as you say, it's got a strikeout, a line through it. Yeah. How did you feel when you opened that? (laughs) I mean, absolutely shocked and blown away. Like my brain initially went to, okay, maybe they didn't mean to write that. But I think just with the the tone of the request of information and then the overall tone of this email, I think it might have been intentional, but I'll try and think of (laughs) the positives (laughs) around it. But yeah, I was very shocked, very shocked. That's Rachel on the live line with Katie Hannon. And on the Ray Darcy Show, 25 years of Ross O'Carroll Kelly with his creator, Paul Howard. Uh, now, there was a time 25 years ago, if I said the name Paul Howard, you would have went, who? And I would have had to describe who he was, journalist with the Sunday Tribune, etc, etc. But now I think uh, everybody knows your name, uh, as the song goes from <laughs> Cheers. Uh, and Paul is with us today because 22 books on and 25 years, that's quarter of a century, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's here to mark and celebrate, first of all, the publication of the new book. And secondly, uh, 25 years of Ross O'Carroll Kelly. Good afternoon, Paul Howard. Good afternoon, Ray. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Isn't that mad? Isn't that t- t- like... My, my, my silver jubilee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah uh, Once Upon a Time in Donnybrook is, is the new one, the 22nd. Um, and 25, like it's, it's hard to believe. I, I would imagine people listen, it's going to make them feel old. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is I'm signing books tomorrow in Dundrum and that's how I've kind of charted my life over the last sort of 20 20 to 25 years it's those book signings because a lot of the same people have been coming every year and sometimes uh, someone will come and they'll have a girlfriend with them and then maybe two years later the girlfriend will be their fiance and then I've noticed you know a couple of years later they might be pregnant and now they're coming and they're married and they've got you know four kids with them so I've seen like Ross is now a middle aged man he was 17 you know school's rugby player 17 year old when I started writing about him and now he's a middle aged man with with grandchildren you know so it's it's scary yeah yeah Uh, and your relationship with your readers is one thing and your relationship with Ross is another thing because like he was he was born out of hatred yes (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. so you've gone from (laughs) loathing this character to obviously loving him I had this huge chip on my shoulder about class when I was when I was growing up you know because I you know I've I come from a, a working class background and those rugby guys drove me mad. You know, absolutely. I used to see them and they would just drive me mad. And then I started covering schools rugby as a sports reporter and uh, all that high-fiving, the sort of jock behaviour, the moms and dads in the crowd, the big mobile phones and, and the, the mothers in the, you know, fur coats standing watching the rugby. And I just thought, this is ripe for send up and I suppose the more I wrote about him you couldn't write about a character for 25 years and not without developing some kind of at least understanding for him Mm. and Ross is this character who 
I suppose he, he has a father who loved him too much in the sense that he told him he was the second coming of Christ and a mother who was kind of like, you know, once she gave birth to him, that was her job done. And then she headed to the Gables in Fox Rock for her <laughs> women, women who lunch lunches. And, um, and, and then he went to a school where he discovered he was good at rugby and became this monster and was told, you know, essentially, you don't have to worry about anything in your life because you're good at rugby. But I suppose over the years, when like when Ross became a father, um, and 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 in the writing, I discovered well, he actually does have a good working moral compass in that mm. he loves his children. Like, and that's kind of he's good at two things. One is playing rugby, and the second is as a parent. And I think that's when I started to warm to him a bit more. Oftentimes, uh, you know, people create characters, and they're sort of their alter ego. Mm. Is there any of that in Ross and you? <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny I was driving I was in the car today and I said something I can't even remember what it was I was talking to my wife Mary on the phone and she said yeah that's Ross that's not you and it, it does it slips out from time to time a lot of the things I write about in Ross especially in scenes where he says something where he, where he says something that somebody's annoying him he says the thing that I wish I had the courage to say in that moment uh, so maybe this, that's not a good idea and I was well, just no. reading the, 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 the current <laughs> book because he's not the brightest no and you're a, you're a bright man Thank you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you're an empathetic man. Yeah. 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 All, all of those things. You, yeah. You're not misogynistic or no, any of those, things, of those that, things that that, that he is. Yeah. So, so you have to be careful, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But but when he gets in a row with somebody, you know, especially if he's standing up for his children, you know, he's always able to say he, he has the killer line. That, yes. Yeah. And it's always the line where I think, God, I wish I had the courage to say that in that moment. So there's a little bit of maybe wish fulfillment. And Ray asked Paul about the early iterations of Russell Carroll Kelly. The first two Russell Carroll Kelly books and probably the first two years of columns in the Sunday Tribune, the the humour is very sledgehammer, very, very angry. And I look back on those books and columns now, the miseducation years and the teenage dirtbag years in particular, and I wonder, I wouldn't write them the same way now. Um, I think when I read them back, I think they're very satirical. I'm not sure that they're funny. Right. So I'm me- I, like, I'm I'm clearly making a point uh, about class, and I'm very kind of angry about it. And but I'm I don't think they're necessarily they're necessarily funny. And I think over the years, I've tried to find a better balance uh, between between the humour and the satire. Yeah, um, and 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 to find where that bite point is, and, and it's been well documented in documentaries uh, that 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 the people you ridicule, yeah, have taken to you, yeah, have taken that you was in. An accident. Yeah, well. <laughs> that wasn't meant to happen. Yeah. That wasn't meant so to happen. So much so, so much so that you've been invited on a number of occasions to Blackrock. Oh, listen, I you know I, I practically have a residency <laughs> in Blackrock <laughs> yeah. College. Like I'm practically the last boarder in the school. Um, yeah, I mean it's an unex. It is. It is an feel, unexpected thing. Do you feel thing. that you're not doing your job? It, oh, yeah, all yeah. the time. No, all no, but you, you, you know what I'm yeah. saying. If, if, you're, if you're slagging yeah. somebody off and they like it, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it is that. That's the that that's the great dilemma for the satirist. I mean, yeah. like they they are my audience. But now, when I look back, I think, well, who did I think my audience was going to be? You know, did I? You know. But you wouldn't have thought like that, I'd imagine. No, I wouldn't at the time. But now I kind of think it's obvious. Of course, they're the audience. I'm writing about South Dublin. I'm sending up people who went to to Blackrock, who played rugby, jock types, uh, ladies who lunch, uh, you know, the yes. sort of Charles or Carol Kelly types in the horseshoe bar, ho, 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 that kind of thing. And 
of course they're the ones who are going to read it. Like, you know, because they are, they see a little bit of themselves in it. But not know? too much. But not too much. And that's the thing about satire. Like you're kind of offering them a mirror in which, I think it was Jonathan Swift said, you're offering a mirror in which people see everybody but themselves, right. you know. So when I wrote the first couple of Ross books, um, a, a, a guy I know who worked in a bookshop told me that, you know, the, the guys would come in on a Saturday. They wouldn't buy the book, but they would sort of stand around it. And he said, I used to watch them with the, the sailing jackets and the, the chinos and the, the dockside shoes. And he said they'd all be chuckling away and they say oh that's so Tiernan and they still, <laughs> okay, so they see yeah, Tiernan yeah. but they don't they don't <laughs> see, see themselves in it yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul Howard from The Ray Darcy Show And on Today with Claire Byrne dating app Tinder is 10 years old Dr. Nicola Fox Hamilton is a cyber psychology researcher and lecturer. Thomas Cross is a, a DJ. And Brianna Parkins, who is a freelance journalist and presenter, we're discussing swiping right with Claire. Nicola, I'll start with you. The basics. Tinder was a game changer. It absolutely was. And I think the word game actually sums up why it was a game changer. It gamified the idea of dating. So online dating had been popular with people in their 30s who were finding it more difficult to meet someone. Tinder came along, they gamified it, they made it fun. And suddenly, like the 18 to 29 year old market took off. It absolutely exploded. They weren't traditionally dating online. Okay, so it brought that younger generation into online dating because before that, with the other systems, which were mostly computer computer based. Yes. Yeah. You, you are now doing this on your phone. Yeah, exactly. And can you go back and tell us more about why it gamified dating? So the whole idea of swiping through profiles rather than scrolling through a whole bunch of pictures just made it a little bit more simple and straightforward. The fact that it was on your phone rather than on the desktop meant you could bring it anywhere. People started doing it with their friends. So they'd pass around the phone and they'd play with it. Um, so it just became more entertainment and fun. And one of the reasons that people say they date on Tinder is for alleviating boredom, for entertainment, which is not something that anyone ever said about traditional online dating. Absolutely. Uh, Crossy, to bring you in on this, I mean, do you identify with with that game sort of culture uh, when it comes to Tinder and other apps, all of the apps that sprang up after uh, Tinder became so popular? I mean, would you be swiping through with your friends? I've never felt so seen in my entire life after hearing that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, do you know what? I um, I found my other half on Tinder. We're nearly a year together next week. And I miss Tinder. I miss sitting down every night. You're watching TV and you're swiping to the next person or you're even playing with your, your friend's Tinder as well. And I think that's right. It has become a game because I just, you know, the traditional dating, you get all dolled up, you go out to a pub and then you get rejected. Now you just sit on the couch on your own and you can just go get rid of all the waffle. Get rid of all, you know, you have to go on three or four dates before you get to know somebody. You can know something about somebody on your couch watching television beside your friend. And it's not way better than wasting a couple of nights and a lot of money on dates when it's not probably going to go anywhere. Yeah, well, we'll talk about the downsides now too. Uh, Brianna, you dipped in and out of uh, using the apps for dating. It didn't suit you, is that right? You didn't find that it worked for you? I mean, I just found that Tinder was getting in the way of my favourite pastime, uh, which is largely being left alone. Um, So I went back to making bad 
dating decisions in real life. Um, no, I, I spent a very brief time amount of time on it, and uh, largely because I moved countries. I moved halfway across the world to to Ireland, and the way I would have dated, which is like you know, you meet some people and some friends, and they bring other friends to, on a night out, or you know, to a restaurant, and then their friends or friends become your prospective dating partners. I didn't have that network anymore. So when I moved to Ireland, I was I was starting from ground zero, and a friend who'd made the reverse move from Ireland to Australia suggested Tinder was the way she actually not just dated but made friends. So if a date didn't work out, she still stayed in contact uh, with the person she she went on the date with, and she ended up being friends with them, and then yeah sort of you know, monkey chaining friends onto that way. Mm. So it was kind of a, a nice way to meet people. Yeah, I, just when you say, you know, that you prefer to make your dating uh, mistakes now in real life, has Tinder become such a part of dating culture now that it is difficult to date any other way other than online, whether you use Tinder or any of the other apps that exist? I mean, I, I, I still think the dual approach. I mean, it depends also how old you are. So I was, t- Tinder is 10 years old. So I was in my early 20s. So I have friends who date both in the analog and digital world. Um, but I've noticed when I go out, um, unfortunately, I, I like techno and dance music, which means I have to go to lots of nightclubs to, to watch that, which I enjoy those spaces. But when I was younger, those spaces would have been uh, pickup places. Like you go out to to either, you know, on a date with someone or to find someone um, who will tolerate you enough to, to make maybe kiss them. Um, but then what I've been noticing is that young people were like, we were, my friends and I totally anecdotally, this is not scientific backing. We're like, do young people not kiss when they go out anymore? And we kind of asked a few. And we discovered that there is like a, a very specific now place for dating, which is the apps. So if you go out in public to a bar, someone might reject you. A lot of people are there just to dance. And it can be quite annoying when someone's you know, coming up to you, trying to buy you a drink and trying to, to get involved with you romantically. Mm-hmm. So I think that younger people are definitely looking at apps as like, that's a space where people are up for it and that's a safe space where people want to date. So I might concentrate my efforts into that, you know, that space where everyone is happy and everyone's happy to be dated there. And Claire asked Dr. Nicola Fox about some of the not so nice aspects. You've talked to a lot of people who've had very different experiences, not all positive on, on dating apps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, you know, they can be fun and they can be enjoyable, but a lot of the time they're not. People find them quite frustrating. They can make them quite anxious. They'll often, like Brianna, dip in and out of it over time. Um, But quite a few people have quite negative experiences and particularly women, younger women, members of the LGBTQ community, people of colour, basically anyone in a minority group tends to have a worse experience than straight, white, educated, young guys. Um, So they can get quite a lot of harassment, people continuing to contact them after they've said that they're not interested. You know, women often get sexual messages, graphic images without requesting them. Um, And they can be called names, they can get some quite violent threats. Like that's less likely, but it still does happen more than it should. Mm -hmm. And and if you're using Tinder, Tinder, you're getting limited information about the person you're contacting. Now, some of the apps that have come afterwards, they allow you to to get more of a sense of the person. Hinge, for example, you can hear the person's voice. Yeah, yeah. And that gives you a bit more information. Um, It's still not a lot. Like when we're online, particularly through text, you're missing a lot of the face-to-face cues where you read a lot into what somebody's like. You've got their body language, their tone of voice, all of that. So voice will give you a little bit more. It's still not giving you the full range of cues that you would get, say, face-to-face in a bar or through friends. And so you're judging people on quite a narrow range of information. 
and our impressions of people tend not to be very accurate. So the first date is really kind of the final screening stage rather than being a date. Mm -hmm. So you're filtering still, you're deciding, is this person who they said they were? Do they look like they said they did? Um, And am I picking up any bad vibes from them, red flags, things like that? Okay. And uh, Crossy, we've spoken before about how the first date has changed a lot, because if you've met somebody online, you're not going to want to go out and spend a lot of time with them in in case they are 20 years older than the um, picture that they put up on Tinder. So people are having walking dates or coffee dates. Yeah, I think it's it's way better doing that these days because why? Because we've been, but I think maybe about two years we haven't been able to do this. So now we're kind of going, you know what, get the 20-minute date, get the coffee, get the walk. And if you like them, that means the next day it's going to be even better because you can go for a drink then or you can go for a bite to eat. And it, it excludes all that, you know, about Tinder if they are older or if they don't look like what they're supposed to look like. And for me, I think that's a plus kind of seeing that beforehand. I don't know. I just, I, I find Tinder brilliant. And all my friends that were using, I know three girls actually every Wednesday, <laughs> every Wednesday night, they all go on Tinder like, right, we're going to do an hour. And they swipe it like a little game. And I think that's fantastic. You know, they're mm. catching up with each other. They're having a glass of wine and they're getting to see if they're looking for their knight in shining armour or a fella in tinfoil. It's one of the other <laughs> usually. <laughs> and it's Crossroom today with Claire Byrne. And on Morning Ireland, the rising cost of living and hikes in energy prices. Here's Mary Wilson. Electric Ireland has joined prepay power and SSC Electricity in announcing more energy increases, leaving households now facing gas and electricity bills triple what they were paying a year ago. Electric Ireland customers face a 26.7% increase in electricity bills and 37.5% on gas from next month. It's the third hike this year. Acknowledging the challenging times facing customers, the company executive director said the unprecedented time in the energy industry is seeing wholesale gas prices in excess of 700% in the last 12 months and 200% since June alone. Now, later we'll hear from Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue, but I'm joined now by Niall Farrell, Senior Research Officer with the ESRI. And Niall, thank you for coming into us this morning. Thank you. At the moment, it's hard sometimes to fully take in just the speed and the scale of the increases that are coming our way. You know, Electric Ireland yesterday citing those wholesale gas price increases. But where could this go to? Well, I suppose one thing to take into account is if we sit at put ourselves in the in the seat of the person in Electric Ireland who's deciding uh, what price to put in place for, for the future, their job is to predict what the cost of, of electricity for them to purchase is going to be. So mm. one would hope that they would take into account what the current expectation is of wholesale prices to be going forward. That would be based on what we know about in terms of current information and perhaps one would hope that prices we might not see as many uh, increases going forward. But that doesn't uh, include the the, uh, possibility of an unpredicted event. If something unpredicted Mm -hmm. happens, well, then all bets are off. Okay, but um, there are efforts now at EU level going on to intervene in the market to separate these power prices from soaring gas prices. But even if they do that, and we have a meeting next week, um, how soon might we see at least a levelling off of increases? Well... It's, it's it's very hard hard to predict. Um, one thing about these the, these issues is that we have a situation where the market structure at the moment, it works very well under normal conditions in terms of guiding uh, least cost electricity production. In these extraordinary circumstances, there is this sort of side effect in that we have a situation where we have high prices, it leads to windfall profits for certain generators. 
and the meetings that are coming up are about well how do we maybe perhaps uh, reduce those windfall profits but one thing when it comes to evaluating the different op- op- options would be tr- for an economist would be through the lens of uh, unintended consequences if we put in something perhaps in a hurry, there is a, this chance that perhaps we might leave ourselves open to some unintended consequences further down the line that may leave us to to, to on 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 unexpected uh, costs. So, in that sense, that would be how one could evaluate perhaps the potential options of maybe a windfall tax versus market reform. There's some very extreme examples of market reform proposed, but perhaps some less uh, fundamental shifts in the market structure might be might be warranted, such as maybe a press, pressure release valve. Now, you know, while I I take your point about unintended consequences and maybe moving too quickly, households are really caught in a bind at the moment and and there are families who really don't know what they're going to do. You've done research on energy poverty and it bears that out, doesn't it? Energy poverty is increasing all the time. Absolutely. So earlier on in the year, we did some research to try and see how many households are in energy poverty, given price rises at that time. And... A few months ago, the the figure that we came up with was around 29% of households spend more than 10% of their income on energy services. And with that piece of research, we analysed, well, what would happen if cost went up by another 25%? These recent changes in prices sort of are in that ballpark. And that would suggest that maybe about 43% of households are, are in energy poverty. So that's, that's a quite a substantial amount where energy is quite a burden uh, on and, and energy poverty kicks in when you spend more than 10% of your income on, on energy price on, well, on energy costs so, so the thing about energy poverty is there's many ways to measure it and this is just yeah. one measure I suppose the way to look at it is that it's more the trajectory that that that's gives us the signal that okay there's there's an increasing burden that's that's taking place and it's it's encroaching on a, a greater proportion of of the population. Niall Farrell, senior research officer at the Economic and Social Research Institute, speaking to Mary Wilson. Then later, Anya Lawler was hearing how people are feeling the squeeze. Budget 2023 will be revealed early this year in just over three weeks on Tuesday the 27th of September. And it's a budget that's going to have to address the cost of living crisis with inflation at 9% and huge increases in gas and electricity charges, the latest yesterday from Electric Ireland. And once again, corporation taxes could end up paying for a lot of it. We'll see the exchequer returns for this year later today and another bumper year of corporation taxes expected there. Many households are already struggling, though, as we heard yesterday from the St Vincent de Paul. And before we speak to the man in the hot seat, Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue, who's here in studio, here's what commuters told reporter Una Mullally this morning about their fears for the winter ahead. I feel like I'm just working to pay bills rather than I can't save anything. I had to cut back on all my luxuries, going out for meals and stuff. It's just the way it's going, it's unfortunate, but... That's the way of it, unfortunately. The, the electric and gas and heating. I'm just trying to survive, like, on a daily basis. Um, be able to go out in the weekend and stuff, but now, no, definitely not. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to go for a pint nowadays. Small family, and it's getting tight with money for housing and stuff. So uh, it's harder and harder every day. What have you noticed in particular going up? The gas. Me, every... I used to only have to put in 30 a week and now I have to put in 40 and 50 every week and it's getting tighter and tighter. It's just hard to keep up with it, like, you know, it's constant, really, yeah. yeah. What have you noticed in particular? Um, groceries, like, everything, like, really, it's just got drink, gone out, all that kind of stuff, yeah, gone nuts. 
oh, just everything. Electricity again yesterday, like, you know, we're Electric Ireland and it's just, it's crazy. You know what I mean? It's, you know, we have one of them air to heat pumps and it, our bill has gone from 100 euro to be 200 euro by the end of the month, like, by the end of the year even, sorry. So that's 100 euro out of our pocket. My mother, she lives on her own, you know what I mean? She's going to probably tell me that she can't turn her heating on and she can't, like, my mother's, compared to my bill, my mother's electricity and heating bill is 600 euro. Mm, you know what I mean? So, like, for two months, you know, 300 euro a month, which is going to go up again. Then Anya spoke to Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue. And with me, Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue. Just looking <clears throat> at what people, I mean, obviously the gas, the electricity, the heating, those are the big bills that people are talking about there. Uh, we heard earlier from the ESRI about 43% of households entering fuel poverty. Will you be able to, in this budget, be able to say to people, at least for this winter, your gas and energy bills, you've seen the worst of it. I'm going to cap. It's not going up any higher. It's not going to be worse in January. Can you do that? So I want to recognise the huge anxiety and concern that many feel at the moment regarding later on in the year. I'm very conscious that as I talk to you on the 2nd of September, it's still a bright long day. And as we move through the year, the days will shorten and they'll be less bright. And it'll be happening at a time also in which we will see bills go up and the anxiety that your mm-hmm. participants just referred to there a moment ago in the Vox Pop will only heighten. So we're still three weeks away from the budget. What I will be able to do and can say now is that we will be able to help and how we will help and what we will do will be confirmed in the coming weeks as we get ready for Budget 2023. The regional uh, group of TDs uh, have a number of proposals, but what they are saying is it's really important for the government to be able to say to to households and to small businesses, these bills which are frightening the living daylights out of you, they're not going to get worse this winter, and they're saying you could do it by raising a long-term loan to pay the difference. Uh, So the government has already acted in relation to this and we are going to act and continue to act act in two different ways across the coming weeks. Firstly, the main reason we brought forward the budget is in anticipation of this moment. And in bringing forward the budget, I and the government and Minister McGrath have made clear that we will have within it measures that help in 2022 to help with the issues that you're raising with me and your listeners feel at the moment. And then secondly, at European and international level, we'll play our part in trying to find ways in which Mm -hmm. we can collectively help. Later on today, I'll be participating in a meeting of the finance ministers of the largest economies across the world as president of the Eurogroup on this very issue. Next week, an emergency meeting of energy ministers is taking place. The Minister Ryan will attend. And then beyond that, we'll have a meeting of finance ministers in Europe, which I'll chair, which is about responding to this. But critically, this is why we brought the budget forward and we will help and can help. And whatever about those uh, EU moves about decoupling and hopefully bringing down uh, prices that way, uh, you're also being called on to bring in a windfall tax on the, you know, the huge profits that are being made by the energy suppliers and all of this, will you? Uh, So uh, I indicated before the summer uh, that this is a matter that the government would have to consider. Of course, I can never comment on any taxation matter of any decision we make until budget day and the government decides on a budget. But do you think in principle it's a good idea or do you worry about that, you know, there may be all kinds of downside consequences that people aren't taking into account when they call for a windfall Like any highly complex, highly sensitive economic issue that's affecting so many people at the moment, there are no simple policies and no simple answers back to us. It is unconscionable and wrong 
that businesses may be worried about going out of business when other businesses, for no reason and nothing that they have done, are also experiencing a surge in profitability. That's wrong. We need to consider at national and European level how we respond to that. In addition to that, any decisions that Europe or Ireland makes has three qualities that we have to consider. One, we don't make things worse. Two, we don't stop or undermine the investment to make sure we're insulated from this in the future. And three, we don't put in place measures that are capable of driving prices up even further. And that's what we have to evaluate, which I and the government are currently doing. As we heard from the ESRI earlier, I mean, I know you won't talk about the details of the budget, but they were saying what you really, you know, if you want to be uh, tackling all of these, this cost of living crisis, the measures are you change fuel taxes, direct payments to households, you change social welfare rates. Uh, Sinn Féin and Labour, they're saying a minimum of €15 a a week is needed on social welfare rates. And again, I'm aware of all of the calls in relation to this. Uh, I met, along with Minister McGrath, the community and voluntary sector yesterday uh, that were pressing this case. And I, as a practising politician, am well aware and can see us in those that I meet, in those that particularly uh, are elderly citizens who have a particular need for the help that the state can give them. I can see the worry that is there and the concern that is mounting. But this you is heard the- that man in the Vox Pop. I mean, this is happening all over the country. His mother is not turning on her heating. But Anya, this is the reason why for already the government increased the fuel allowance. So the fuel allowance before we came into this crisis and this new challenge stood at 735 euro. It's now 1,139 euros. That's already been increased in anticipation for this moment and helping with the difficulties earlier on in the year. And of course we do fully understand that those who are on lower income, that the higher prices hurt them more. And what we will need to do, which we did earlier on in the year and we will continue to do, is look at a mix of measures that are capable of helping, of making a real difference and are also affordable for mm. the country overall. Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, talking to Anya Lawler from Morning Ireland. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, former RTE presenter Catherine McKernan was talking about working on the den, travelling the world and coming home. We would have uh, crossed paths regularly enough uh, mm-hmm. 200 years ago when you worked <laughs> here in uh, on the campus in the in the in Montrosia um, as a presenter of the den. The den. <laughs> Back in the day. So Catherine, uh, if you, if you if you don't remember Catherine, you've distinct distinctively beautiful red flowing locks and <laughs> you had a great uh, sense of humour and you got on really well with uh, all the um, I suppose denizens of the den if you like uh, what year did you start in the den? In 2005 so I was but 19 when I got the job young, I was oh so God. young and I'd literally just turned 19 at the time so it was a massive deal in my life as you yeah. can imagine yeah. Um, but yeah one of the best experiences Were you, were you studying at the time? I was actually, yeah. Um, I was in Griffith College doing an honours degree, a BA in journalism and visual media. The goal always being like to present, to be honest, Mm. that's what was so mad about the whole thing. Um, I was in college 
studying away and like thinking to myself one day in some sort of magic dreamland I might yes. be a presenter yeah. and then um, got the opportunity and like landed the gig ended up actually leaving my degree but um, I for a year and then I went back and studied by night because I always I just felt there was such importance in education and me having a piece of paper to say yeah. that I have a degree wise, wise. so yeah I went I ended up taking a year out and then going back by night and studying and I ended up getting a first class honours which to my surprise considering you know people do it all the time obviously working full time and then studying so um, yeah but I the den was uh, it was a mad time in my life it was five so five young. years I did five years yeah presenting a whole heap of shows on and the den and who were your kind of furry uh, puppety um, <laughs> uh, co-stars uh, I had the honour and the privilege of working alongside Dustin and Saki I say working you know yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I do yeah. <laughs> to this day yeah. uh, to be tormented by Dustin and uh, oh, no Saki yeah. Saki you were quite close with Saki weren't yeah, you like, particularly yeah and um, I got like that was probably the biggest thing ever you know was meeting them for the first time <laughs> like these are you know I would have grown up along yeah. watching them and Ray Darcy would have been the person I was watching yeah. so then to suddenly be on screen with yeah. them it was it was a dream truly and they're absolute messers as you know yes. so uh, it was definitely a baptism of fire from the moment I met them So you did that for, for five years Yeah um, and you you then went back to do your education is that, is that what happened I actually no I just you? took a year out and then decided while I that was still there I would go back and study by night okay. I did my last few years by night um, so still working on the den and doing that I'll never forget like doing the equivalent of a thesis if you like on a plane to Lapland <laughs> and I remember you know because I got along so great with the crew of course as you do they're yeah. such diamonds and um they were like the, the plane was full of screams and shouts and excited children. And I mean, I was one of them. Um, and there I was trying to like study and, you know, finish yeah. my degree, if yeah, you yeah, like. Yeah, that's On great. the plane, we were going over for, with the show to meet to meet Santa. And uh, yeah, so it was it was a mad time. But I'm so glad I did that because I think if I'd have left it, um, I, you know, you may never go back. And I just really valued my education. You did the right thing. So after the den, Catherine headed off to see the world. Well, I went uh, first with one of my best friends and my brother we travelled through Southeast Asia for like five six months Southeast then we Asia. went through <laughs> we went through thank you for Keep taking going, yes. uh, we then went to Australia and New Zealand all travel 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 and then when I got to New Zealand I fell in love with it and uh, I ended up staying and working nice. I was actually working bizarrely enough in children's television yeah. the Kiwi version of the den I'm not really, even lying really? yeah it was what was I doing like I went from one thing yeah. straight into another and so amazing experience like unbelievable to have landed something like that but I soon realised I wanted to be heading off with for more fun and games so I did a ski season in New Zealand nice. and just travelled to New Zealand had an unbelievable time then um, uh, I ended up going back to Australia and living in Australia okay. and working there. Um, I had all sorts of weird and wonderful experiences, it, it work experiences, I should say, there. And um, then I, I travelled through Central America, nice. did loads of travels okay. all around Oz and Tasmania. And then, um, yeah, Canada was where I came home from, if you like, last year. So Okay, I need uh, to go back over some of these places. Okay. Um, <laughs> 
I've never been to Australia. Oh, have you not? No, and I've I studied Australian history as part of my history oh, well. course. So I, I'm interested in Australia yeah. in some ways. Mm. And I was only we were only talking about it before the show this morning. I went around oh, really? the team to see who's been, and only two out of six or uh, seven, maybe six, had been. So you okay. always think everyone's been to Australia, True. But, but they yeah. haven't. Mm, um, it's a long way away. I feel like sometimes I want to lift the curtain and see what's underneath there as yeah. opposed to you know in America you know we've got all these states and all this history and yeah. you kind of want to do a kind of a, you know train tour something mad or drive an open top car mm-hmm, across mm-hmm. what would sell Australia to me like why would why would I want to go to Australia oh it really you are on the other side of the world like and you feel that and it's, do you You re- really? I think you in do what way? in my opinion I think it's it's so unique. Like, and even people think New Zealand's right beside us. Sure, they must be the same. <laughs> Ireland, England, like very, we're, we're well, totally actually, different. Yeah. The, the same, exactly yeah. that. Um, so it is, yeah, it's like no other place you've ever been. Um, I find the history to it all fascinating. Um, and, you know, I obviously would have been mingling with lots of Australians. I always tried that no matter where I was living, that I wasn't just going to be with the Irish crew. Yeah. Obviously, love the Irish crew all over the world. We're the best ever. But immerse, immerse. Oh, yeah, yeah that's why I'm yeah. there. Yeah. Like, yeah, and knowing that I was never going to be there, there for the rest of my days, I really wanted to immerse. So that in itself is fascinating. Yeah. Just their thoughts on their own history and the Aboriginals, and I that was mind blowing to me, and not something I was fully aware of. You all, you know about it, and even going to somewhere like Tasmania, which I ended up because I was doing all these travels on my own. So I ended up just renting a car in Tasmania and literally driving around for three weeks. Like, did the whole. Yeah. Island. And even that's like, well, it's of course part of Australia. It's so such another little it's Van Diemen's world. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you go to, the, I remember going to the museum in uh, the uh, Wicklow Jail, and yeah, it just the, the amount of people that we sent over to oh, it's there and Australia. Like the, the, yeah. yeah, and when you make that journey and you know about that, it's it just uh, I don't know brings it all to life. It's mind blowing stuff, and I that was very real to me there. I don't know. I I don't know if I'm selling Australia to you. You are, <laughs> but it, you are. it's a very much a, a different lifestyle completely. And and you know what's Matt? Because it's so huge, of course. East Coast is so different to West Coast. Yeah. It's so different to the vast, Northern Territories. It's it's yeah. hard to wrap your head around when you're there. And I feel so blessed, Ryan, that I actually did it. Like yeah. I feel like I proper did Australia in that I travelled. I didn't. My brother is actually. I have three older brothers, all of uh, all of whom have been to Australia and spent a lot of time there. And they were like, "Don't get caught in the Sydney trap." And that was my... Is that right? Uh, so, you so, just, so you just go boom. Yeah, yeah. And Sydney's a gorgeous city. I absolutely, peace my heart, will always live there in a way. Um, but I didn't want to get trapped there. I was so determined to see as much of the country as possible. Catherine McKernan from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time. <laughs>